Welcome to Acts to the Future. We are really excited about this series as we are checking into so many different aspects of um, just what it means for the church of the past to influence who we are in the present. And that's really what we're going to be looking at. Uh, for those of you who are our guests, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris. I'm senior pastor at Olive Branch, and this is the beginning of a series as we work through the book of Acts. And this is just the beginning of a series of series as we look at Acts and kind of look at the early original church. We'll get in that in a minute. What I'd love to do is just start off, though, with some prayer. A couple of quick things as we're going to be considering and talking about this idea of the original purpose and mission of the church. Um, one of the things that has been brought to my attention is happening overseas right now. We have some we have a friend, um, some of you guys know her, who is uh, currently out in Indonesia. They've had some pretty traumatic and horrible stuff going on out there right now. About a thousand, She knows about roughly a thousand people have died from the tsunami. And a, many of her friends, multiple people that she herself are, is friends with, are waiting for news back about where or... Uh, uh, where their family members are, if they're alive, what's going on. There's been earthquakes. It's just, a, it's a very apocalyptic almost out there right now. So we want to lift them up as well as uh, just pray for our time in the book of Acts. And so just kind of keeping this, both those things in mind. So if you join with me, we're going to open up in prayer real quick and ask God's, uh, God's aid and blessing. Father, first, we just come before you on behalf of the people in Indonesia, Lord, knowing that they are, they are fighting through some pretty horrific suffering, um, not uncommon often on the island. But right now, it's just hitting home with um, our friend who, uh, who's living there. And we pray that her friends that she has made contact with and all of those that are around who are despairing because they don't know where their loved ones are. And if they die, they don't really know what happens to them. God, we hope that uh, you would just help them and aid them. Give, give the ministry there an opportunity to care and connect and love on them. Let these, um, let these people who are worried about their family members find out that they haven't died and that their family is fine. But God, with all the suffering that's happening there, thank you that you didn't leave us alone. That suffering is not something um, that is beyond you, but you are willing to put yourself in the middle of suffering to love us and to care for us and to, ex and to uh, be with us in it. And so we thank you that you're constantly working on the suffering and working in the suffering. And so we pray that you would just be there and present in that. Finally, also, Lord, uh, for our, this series, help us to see how what you did in your suffering begins to work through us and challenge and lead us forward from here. We ask your blessing as we get into this book uh, and uh, this conversation about the church and uh, where it's headed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot you can tell about an organization by what they put on their walls. Isn't that true? If you go into, say, Google and you walk in, you're going to probably see nice white walls, very clear vision statements, a very clean environment. You walk into a corporate office of, of any major business, they want you to zero in on what's most important. Same thing is true when you enter into a church. You're going to come in here. You're going to see we have the love, live, and share on our walls. We're trying to talk about who we are and what, we, what we're up to and what's going on. And, and what you put up on the walls and what your leadership does explains a lot about what you're focused on. And when you understand that, you begin to begin to kind of see things in a different eyes. What are they trying to communicate? What's going on? And being a pastor, when I go to other churches, I'm constantly watching what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, what's going on. The, the most oddest situation I've ever walked into was I was invited to a Greek Orthodox funeral. 
you ever been to a Greek Orthodox church, um, if you haven't, it's fascinatingly different, right? So they've got, you imagine stained glass all over the place. um, They've got church fathers painted on the walls and etched in glass. You've got all the pictures of the apostles and the scenes. I mean, it is covered with this with this beautiful artwork, and then in the middle is this gold inlaid altar with all kinds of other golden things all around it, a big gold Bible. And as he came in the, the, with his awesome big millennial-like beard, which they had him be first, and, uh, the, and, he, and he had on all of his, his accoutrements with his big long, um, it was, I don't know what that thing is, it looks like a, just kind of this headpiece. He's shaking this long incense burner, and it's putting out incense, and he's mumbling to himself in Greek, something like that. And so as he's going down these, I'm watching this going like, wow, what, are they, what is their aim here? What is their point? And then I think it all culminated as he took out the censer and started sprinkling water and all over everything, set it down, and then grabbed the big gold Bible, and he gave it the, just the biggest kiss I think I've ever seen. Like, his lips were full out of his beard, like, Mwah! and he takes that thing, says something else, and sets it down. I'm like, that's what this is about, man. They are about the rituals and the beauty and the wonder of these things. And that's kind of what came out of it. And I started asking myself, man, I wonder what the apostles would think if they were sitting here. And then I asked myself that, I wonder what the apostles would think if they were sitting in here. You know, with the rock music and the lights moving and all the technology, would they see what makes church church or would they just see what's hanging on the walls? Would they understand what drives the church is still alive in the church, or has it died? Is it not there? Would they be like, I don't see it? The question for me is, if we were to get into a time machine, zip our way back to the first century, would you and I understand what in the world the church was? When we stepped out and we got around the apostles, we'd be like going like, oh, this is awkward. This is weird. Like, this is difficult. This is challenging. Is this really what the church is? And I love it because, honestly, we can't go back in time. I'd love to jump in that DeLorean and go check it out. We can't do that. But we can have the next best thing. At the beginning of the Back to the Future, the third movie, which I had waited so long as a young man to see, finally came out, and Doc sends this letter forward. Anybody remember that scene? Western Union shows up, and they, they get this letter. He opens it up, and they had this long bet. Nobody would be standing on the road where it was supposed to be delivered at that time period. And, and so there's, he opens it up, and Doc lays out this letter about what's happened in the past, and here's what's going on. And so he goes and researches, and the movie starts that way. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had some letter that was sent forward to us from the past to tell us what the church is really supposed to be up to and doing, what our next steps are? And what I'm actually here to tell you is we do. In fact, there was this man named, we'll call him Dr. Luke. His name was Luke. He was a physician in the ancient world, and he had traveled around with a man, a church planner named Paul. And as he went about all over Asia, all over Asia Minor, all over Greece, he eventually would end up in Rome, Paul would be arrested for his proclamation of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and arrested for planting churches and being kind of this person who had usurped and changed the world in a sense. And he'd be, have to stand before Nero. Before that would happen, I believe this man named Theophilus, very, very clearly a man who was uh, in charge and had some kind of um, Roman authority, asked as a believer, we need some information, get it to us. And so Dr. Luke, had already set out collecting information, had done eyewitness interviews, had gathered all this information, he'd set out to write a biography of Jesus, a set of information in order for people to know who Jesus was. And his biography turned not into one volume, but two volumes in total. 
And so what we have today is broken into your Bibles as, as two different books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which is a one set that go together. They call it Luke-Acts, and they are the biography of Jesus, full and complete. In fact, Dr. Luke, at the beginning of his first scroll, because these wouldn't have been written on, on bound paper like this, it's been written on big, long scrolls. On his first scroll that he writes, he actually describes his procedures. He says, Inasmuch as many, meaning other people, have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he's talking to, his, to the Theophilus, his fellow Christian, and all the other believers and things that have gone on. He says, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also to do what? Having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. And so what he's done is he says, look, we have all of these other people who've tried to compile accounts, and I've got some of those. We have the eyewitness documents passed to us, and we believe that he probably had the book of Mark. Maybe he had the book of Matthew or parts of it. And so he had those available to him, and he also had been a part of a lot of the things that had gone on. In fact, several times as we get into his second scroll that we call Acts, he actually shows up. He says, we he shows up in the scenes dealing and being a part of it. So what Dr. Luke is giving to you and to me is eyewitness testimony and researched evidence. In fact, after centuries later, when you look at Dr. Luke as a historian, he is considered one of the greatest historians of antiquity. He will get some of his observations down to where we know what month they are in particular cities as he describes it, because of certain people who are in that city and at what time period certain things happen. Dr. Luke not only had experienced this, but he was trying to be as accurate as possible because he was turning this into Theophilus, who likely was a Roman official, going to use this in some official capacity. And so what we begin with today, as we start examining this book, is, is a man who's researched this, he's checked this out, he's delivering to you and to me, like a letter from the past, what the church ought to look like. In fact, that's what his second volume is about. As he begins to get into his second scroll, he kind of sums up his first scroll of the biography of Jesus. We can find this scroll called the book of Acts for us on in page 909. And we, we provide Bibles for you guys. This is a collection of the, of the Christian and Jewish scriptures. And so we want to open these up. You can find on page 909, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. And we're going to kind of look through just 11 verses from this to kind of pull out the thought that Dr. Luke is giving to us. Now, he begins with a summation, as I said, and he starts with this. In the first book, or the first scroll, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there he sums up his first scroll. It's about what Jesus began to do. We see his birth, we see his teachings, we see his death, we see his burial and his resurrection. And he says, listen, this is all that Jesus began to do. And the resurrection is the hinge point of his text. Jesus, it's culminated in Jesus coming to back to life after a brutal crucifixion to the point that the apostles actually sit down and eat with him. They actually have a meal with him. And it's not just one time, as we'll see. Because a lot of people like to tell you, oh, you know, the apostles, they're just smoking shrooms. And so they all saw Jesus at the same time. Some holy oh, it's Jesus, dude. I see Jesus too in my toast. No, not that kind of thing. This was literally the physical appearance, and so much so that he would say, 
that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, not just one. I mean, he ate with them. He showed them his scars. He walked in their presence. He even taught them for 40 days, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You ever wondered how they got the idea that Jesus' crucifixion took on people's sin? You ever wondered how they thought that the resurrection had powerful meaning beyond just, hey, you're alive, this is crazy, except that Jesus explained his actions. And over these 40 days, he would explain that he was the sacrifice that humanity needed so that we could have a new, a new relationship with God. So that you and I would no longer continue to kill and murder and be crazy to each other, but we would learn to love one another as God has loved us, that he's taken our sin, punished Jesus who was willing to bear it for us, and then Jesus overcame it by rising from the dead so he could give us life beyond the grave and overcome death for humanity. And in this picture, Jesus explains the theology, lays out these things, opens the minds of the apostles and his disciples up so they can begin to explain it. And really what you see is, is, is he says, look, there was 40 days here. This isn't a one-time show up and one day later Jesus is gone. No, 40 days of appearances, 40 days with 150 plus people that would experience the resurrected Jesus. There's a lot of interesting background and pieces in that. We turn this entire segment into a sermon itself. But this is just Paul, or just, just a Dr. Luke's setup. He's saying, listen, this is what happened. Now we're going to get into what Jesus is going to continue to do. Notice Jesus began to do and teach until the day was taken up. Now we're going to get into what he's going to continue to do through his church through his apostles, those who are given the Holy Spirit. This is now a movement away from Jesus' personal work to Jesus' corporate work in his church. And so really what I want us to see is we look at this second scroll. As we continue in this biography of Jesus, what Dr. Luke is saying is what was good and true for the church in the past points to what we should be doing today. What they did back then, what they did in the past, points to what we should be doing today. And so this gathers all kinds of information. We're going to look at the mission. We're going to look at the message. We're going to look at all of these various aspects of the church that were originally for the church that are still true and should be found today, regardless of what the exterior of a building looks like, regardless of the carpet, the seating arrangements, whether there's an altar or not, whether I'm going to kiss this Bible or not, I'm not, uh, and, whether, and what we do. It, it's about these core aspects that are going to be laid out here. And today we're going to look at the purpose of the church because the purpose, the church's purpose then is our purpose today. The purpose of the original church is the purpose today. We need to understand that what they were doing is what we've been called to do. Dr. Luke will move from the passage you look to and he'll talk about a time they were gathered together to eat and there's promise. He reminds them of the promise of John the Baptist that said there was going to be this spirit that's going to come. And then eventually they wind up in our scene here in verse 6 on this mountain called the Mountain of Olives or the Mount Olivet across from the valley and look, overlooking Jerusalem. He's standing there and he's speaking to his disciples and he gets into their purpose that he has for them. So when they'd come together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Hey, are you going to be the military might and giant? Or are you going to storm out and take over Jerusalem now and take over all of the rest of the world because, you know, you're kind of invincible? And the answer was, it's not for you to know, Jesus says, the times or the seasons that our Father has fixed on his own authority. But, and then here is the mission, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is your job. You guys are going out to be my witnesses. It's a fascinating word. Um, the word in the Greek is the word martyr. Now, martyr has been taken and used in all kinds of interesting ways. And the reason martyr gets associated with death is because the apostles will die for their testimony. Now, last, last time I checked in our culture, testimony is a big deal right now out there in the middle of our culture, isn't it? A lot about testimonies, a lot about conversations of testimonies and things like this. And, and then we understand the weight of a testimony determines the weight of the truth of certain things. And that testimonies have to be corroborated. There's all kinds of things about testimonies we've been hearing about. Well, it's no different in this case. And so when we as a church, not the building, but we as the gathering of Jesus' followers are called to be, bear witness, to talk about what Jesus has done, oftentimes the application as a pastor is to tell you guys, go out there, let people know how Jesus has changed your life. You know, talk about where you were and how messed up your life was. And then when Jesus came in, what he did and how he changed you and the different thinking you have and the different life that you have. You know, that's typically a testimony setup. Here's the problem with me now telling you guys, um, go out and give your testimony. It's called YouTube. We live in a YouTube time period. Guys, you can find a testimony for everything. You can find a testimony for Colgate and how it changed the guy's gums and made him happy. You can find a testimony for the Baha'i religion. You can find a testimony from Islam. You can find testimony after testimony after testimony where people's lives were genuinely messed up. They found a religion and it transformed them. That kind of testimony is helpful, but it needs to be founded on something deeper. Just a general testimony of your life and how Jesus affected you is about as powerful as everybody else's general testimony about what their God did for them. Really, the question is, how do we know that we weren't lied to? How do you know that some angel didn't just come to some guy in upstate New York and tell us this stuff? Or some guy in the Middle East and tell him to write down a bunch of stuff? Or some guy in India and tell him that all the religions are the same? which are the testimonies of three of the other religions out there? The answer is because we need something like eyewitness testimony of a historical event that can be grounded. That's why when they're called to be witnesses, they are called to give their testimony. They're not called to give what they feel or what they think happened. Their entire testimony, their entire witness was that, hey, we followed this guy named Jesus. He was a Jewish rabbi, and he taught us how to love people and how to share and care about humanity and do some crazy things that we, we never thought we could do. And then Jesus was crucified as a criminal. We watched him die. And three days later, we had breakfast with him. And for 40 days after that, we heard from him and talked to him. And this is what we saw. Not somebody told me about it, and I believe it. No, this is what we saw. And Dr. Luke, he, he summarized all that. He gathered it up. He had talked to these people. He probably talked to Mary. He probably talked to all these different people and wrote down in his biography what he had. But there were three others who wrote down their biographies of Jesus, too. Three guys were standing here on this day. One of them's name was Levi. He was a tax collector. In the ancient world, as a tax collector, it meant that he had rejected everybody. Uh, he rejected his own na nationality and people because he was ready to collect taxes against them and make himself wealthy off the backs of the taxation of Rome. Tax collectors weren't liked. In fact, they were hated. They had no friends but other tax collectors. And Jesus walked up to him one day and said, here, come follow me. 
We know, Jesus, we know Levi as Matthew, and Matthew's life was so utterly transformed after the resurrection of Jesus that suddenly they were, he was staring at his, his Lord who was alive that he had to write down a biography for the Jewish people so they would know who this Jesus was. Peter, who had rejected Jesus, didn't want anything to do with Jesus because he was going to be crucified, afraid he was going to die, somehow turns from this disciple running away to this disciple who's standing throughout all the rest of what we see in ancient history is that he is preaching this message about this risen Jesus because he had been reinstituted by Jesus. And now this young protege who's sitting behind him named John Mark is writing down all of the recollections of Peter as he's preaching them. And we wind up with a book that you and I know as the Gospel of Mark. That the preachings of Peter have his eyewitness testimony about what Jesus had done. And then we have John who watched all of the other disciples die brutal deaths because of their testimony. John sitting there watching not only his friends die, watched Israel be ransacked and destroyed. And late in his life, in his 90s, he finally sits down and pens his recollections of, his, of who his Lord was as the biography of Jesus. We know it as the Gospel of John. And he lays in all the details and so many fine aspects of what he felt needed to be known because as new as life was coming to him, he was the last apostle. He needed to f- pass on the testimony. Now, here's the powerful thing. When a testimony is written down, you know it's important. It's one thing when you just speak your testimony and people can't remember it. It's another thing when you write your testimony down so people can check you on it. And that's what they did in a time period when it could be checked. They had written their testimonies down. In a time period when it could be validated, they written down and many of them died for what they wrote and what they proclaimed. Not because they believed some other thing, but because they saw it. There are people who will die for lies because they don't know they're dying for lies. There are few people in this world who will die knowing they're lying. Now, everyone under torture like they would suffer eventually will say, I'm lying. These men wrote down what they said they saw, and these corroborate together into the story of a resurrected Jesus, that God loves us in the midst of our suffering, and this is the message they were sent to send. This is what founds your testimony. It is the fact you have very historical documents that back up and match the ancient world accurately and can be corroborated from beyond the Bible in many cases. And what you have here then is the ability for you to walk forward as a witness of a message that God indeed has forgiven human beings of sin. They don't have to go to hell. The final judgment can be passed by and they can receive a relationship with the living God who created the universe and still is working in this world because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is the message that we've been given to go with, and this is what they witnessed to. And now, if that's the message of the past, that is our current mission now. And so the mission that we go with should, be, should go everywhere we can. We should take it wherever you go. And this is really where we want to share the witness. Notice again what he says. He starts with Jerusalem, and he says, um, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he says, Jerusalem. Now, that's not where they were from. That's where they were. That's where they started. Guys, you're in Corona. Start here. Start where you're at. Don't be so planned, oh, I'm going to go out there someday and go to this. No, you need to start where you're at. You may be here as a vacation. You may be here just hanging out. Then start here. Wherever you go is how we put this. Love, live, and share Christ wherever you go. God's got you where he's got you for whatever reason. 
And we need to be willing to step into that witness and share that witness when it's appropriate wherever we go. It is our goal and our job to, to share that God has saved human beings, that God has come to love them and to care about them and to sacrifice his life on them. That's how much he loves them and desires them to be with him in heaven. And so we have this picture of us taking this wherever we go. And so we get creative. Use the internet. I mean, don't you think the apostles would love to have the internet? Don't you think they would love to have sound systems and broadcasts? And tell, I mean, they would love to have the opportunities that are at our fingertips to share this message. They had to go by horse and by foot and occasionally by boat, but they didn't have half of the things that you and I get to use today. And so there is so much available. We can be creative about this, but we do it wherever we go, locally and even globally. We'll hit globally in a second. But I want you guys to see this because it's also important that we notice, while this is supposed to be spread out, there, we shouldn't discriminate in our spreading of this message. This is, we should share without discrimination. One of the things that happens is oftentimes if you're a Christian long enough, you'll begin to assume there are certain people that they just don't want it, and you'll say no for them. You ever done this? I've done this. Man, Family, there was, there was somebody in, in my life that I cared about and I loved, and he, he was an ardent atheist, didn't really want to talk about it. And, you know, he's a great guy, but I was just thinking, he's just not going to want to listen to this. And so at some point, I just kind of went, I'm done. I'm not going to tell him. It's just not important. He's not going to listen. Um, and, uh, you know, about two years or three years later, he comes to me and says, hey, this is going on in my life. I really need to know what's going on. I've really appreciated how you treated me. That We get into this conversation and now he's a Christian who is following Christ, who's growing in our church, and I'm just blown away that somebody I was saying no for, God was ready to say yes to. Don't ever, ever think someone's beyond hope. I mean, the church planner Paul would be a guy beyond hope. As we'll see later in the book of Acts, a persecutor, he had weaponized Judaism and was capable legally using it to destroy Christians, and he became one of the greatest church planners in church history. Don't ever put anybody be in the pale beyond the hope. Just because they may have certain ways about their life, certain worldviews, be in a different religion, don't put them beyond the, well, they would never, well, they would never. My friends, we can't do that. You see, the, the, these apostles had that problem. When we look at this text, he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea. And I believe they expected him next day, and then Galilee, and then to the Jews beyond. Because they were Jewish mindset. They, they believed the kingdom was, was for Israel, right? Jesus was their king, their Messiah, risen from the dead. Let's take Rome, take over the world. We're going to fulfill the prophecies. This is it. And Jesus says, no, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Say, what? So if you don't know anything about Samaria, uh, the, the Israelites and the Samaritans were racists. I mean, uber racist. First, the Israelites had, had just grown up in a society where they watched the pagans just be so crazy. Those Gentiles out there, they didn't want nothing to do with In fact, you were unclean to go in their home. Next thing you know, though, the Samaritans were even lower. Because they were considered half-breeds who were distorting the true religion. They had made their own Torah, their own set of scriptures. They had their own temple. They had all this stuff. And so when you went to the Samaria, even if you stepped foot on their land, you were unclean. You didn't deal with the Samaritans. These guys were wicked evil. And Jesus goes, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to go from Jerusalem, then Judea, and then you're going to Samaria. 
I didn't like it, Jesus, when we went there with you. You really want me to? Yes. Go there. I want you to reach out to that child molester. I want you to reach out to that, to that, that prisoner, that gangbanger. I want you to reach out to that politician. I want you to read, well, maybe not the politician, but I want you, I'm just kidding. No, I want you to reach out to anybody. Do not have a discrimination. There should be nobody age-wise, economic-wise, ethnicity-wise that God hasn't loved and cared about. Nobody in a different view of marriage, a different view of sex, a different view of their own gender. It doesn't matter. God has given this gospel to everyone. We may think differently, but God loves them. And He sent us on mission not to discriminate. He sends them to their number one group they said no to. Don't you think He sends us to the number one group we think would never receive it? We need to rethink why God has given us this message. The mission is to go indiscriminately everywhere to every person as far as we can. Notice he says, to the end of the earth. I don't know how far that was in their minds. I mean, they knew about the barbarians, and they understood there were a bunch of people down in the bottom of Africa. They knew there were the Chinese way out there somewhere, but they didn't know about the Aborigines. And as far as I can tell, this is where we are right now, kind of the ends of the earth. You know, there was a giant continent they didn't even know about, and we live on the very furthest edge away on it. You know, this is kind of the end of the earth, and yet still, you know what? There's further to go, because this isn't about some edge of a flat earth. That's not what they were talking about. This is about as far as you can think where human beings are. And today in a global world where we know where all the human beings are, guys, there's still work to be done. There are still unreached people groups out there. That's why we're sending people into Southeast Asia. That's why we're going to send people to where Jesus isn't known. Where literally you can walk into the cities, you can walk into the bazaars, you can show up into those locations and say, hey, do you know who Jesus is? They go, no, what shop does he own? That's the answer you'll get. Well, in the West, we use Jesus' name as a swear word. He's so common. The, di- the vast difference here is that These people just have never heard. And it's been 1,985 years since this mission was given, and they still haven't heard. Which is why some of us need to go, which is why some of us need to get creative in reaching here. You are blessed, my friends. You live in Southern California, where you have almost every ethnicity in the world sitting around you. You have LA that has the vast majority of ethnicities in the world right at our fingertips. UCR gets international students that come out that never see the home of a Westerner while they're coming from the Middle East and coming from Southeast Asia. And you guys have the opportunity to invite them in your home to get creative about it, to figure out how to be able to love and show the Christian hospitality to them so that they can hear an opportunity about Jesus and bring it back to their homes. Did you know we're going to have the largest mosque likely in Southern California? Now that may cause some of you a lot of pain. That tells me God wants an opportunity for the church to wake up and reach out to Muslims in our very own homeland. That guess what? They might get excited about Jesus and send it back to their homes where they need to hear about Jesus. This isn't scary. It's opportunity when you're on mission Because the mission of the church early is still the mission of the church today, regardless of what it looks like around you. We still want to present the love of God to every single human being without discrimination and everywhere that we can go. That's the mission of Olive Branch because that's the mission of the early church. And so 
obviously something's gone wrong. If 1,985 years later, we haven't gotten there, and we have the internet, and we have broadcasting, we have every jet plane flying to every location we possibly think of. What's going on? Why isn't this done? The answer is because we've got excuses. We're busy. There's things to do. I get it. They did too. Check out the excuses right here in the text. It's pretty interesting. It begins in verse 4 and 5, um, but I, I want to challenge us with this thought that many of us are just waiting. We're waiting for something. In our conversations about um, preparing for evangelism, we've heard this, like, I just don't know. I'm, I'm waiting to get a little bit more information. I need to little, grow up a little bit. I've not been a Christian very long. Real quick, how many of you guys have been Christians for at least three years or more? Put your hand up. we look around. That's about how long the apostles had with Jesus. So if you've been longer... You're good. I think you got enough. Next step then is to go, okay, well, what am I waiting for? I don't know. What are we waiting for? See, we need to stop waiting until we got it all right. Stop waiting until you're perfect. Well, when I stop sinning, I'll tell people about Jesus. They're just going to point out I'm a hypocrite. You go, great. Here's my advice to you. If you feel like a hypocrite, say, hey, that's what I needed Jesus for. You're a hypocrite too. Why don't you join me? Try that one on. Let's see how that works. I don't know. But the idea is, look, what are we waiting for? The apostles were told to wait. Notice, Jesus turns to them while they were staying with him. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. For what? For the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What you need to wait for, apostles and all you guys, is the coming of the Spirit of God. When that came, as we'll see in a couple weeks, it's the birth of the church. When you come to Jesus, you get the Spirit of God automatically. He seals you into your salvation. He gifts you with a gift to use amongst the church. He presents his presence in you to transform you. Now you can have subsequent fillings of the Spirit and stuff like that, but you've been baptized in the Spirit. See, it's the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Scriptures where the Holy Spirit goes, I'm here. I'm done. I'm here. I'm done. He comes and he goes. He comes and he goes. Not with the Christian. He is with you and he is in you for the sake of the mission. He empowers you with everything that you need for the mission. When my power, when the Spirit comes upon you in power, you're going to be ready. Here it is. This is what you have. We don't have anything to wait for. You have the witness that they have. They wrote it down. You have the power that they have. And now it's time to drop the excuse. It's time for me and you to get moving. But it's also, man... We just need to realize that on-the-job training works better here. Too many times I think we... You ever, you ever heard a pastor call seminary cemetery? You ever heard that? So a seminary is a special school for pastors to go to where it teaches you church stuff and theology and all these things. There's a lot of pastors out there who go, Oh, cemetery. Oh, it's a place where the dead people go. You know, you want to know why seminary was cemetery for those guys? Because they weren't on mission. You see, when you want to know... And you want to learn theology, it's because somebody you've been talking to is going, well, I don't believe in the Trinity, and this is why. And you're going like, ah, 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 I need some help. Suddenly, that theology class on the Trinity is really helpful. When you're dealing with somebody who's trying to add on to salvation all these works and sacraments and stuff, and you're like, uh, what do I think about these things? I don't even know. What do I? Theology becomes explosively powerful. When they start challenging you to prove that God exists, apologetics becomes intimately necessary. The problem is, too often, we go to school for things we're not asking questions about. 
because we got off mission. If you're on mission and you're being asked questions, oh, school is super cool. I'm not against seminary. I'm not against school. I'm against going to it and ditching the mission. Be on mission, school will light up. Be on mission and your education and apologetics classes and things will explode because you'll see the need. And so that leads us to a problem that we can oftentimes get lost in our theology. Don't get lost in theology at the expense of the mission. No, I'm not against theology. If anybody knows me, I'm a theological nut. I had fun rewriting, you know, readjusting re- our theological statements so it had more teeth. I like this stuff. I got an entire wall in my office of theology books. So don't, don't hear me that I'm saying don't do theology. I'm actually telling you do theology while you're on mission. Don't let your theology distract you because I was part of a generation that watched my friends walking away from the church and getting distracted because all they ever heard about was Jesus was coming back in so many days and this is what you got to look for and this is when he's going to come back and this is what the Antichrist is going to do and here's 9,000 books on Left Behind series and bad movies and all and we were just like, What? An entire generation so fixated on end times eschatology, they missed what they needed to do to reach a generation right in their face. And I'm not against end times, trust me. Here's the trouble. The apostles were just as fixated. Notice what he said. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's an end times question. And here's Jesus' response to the apostles who will pin the very books that you and I are going to dig through to find eschatology and in times questions answered. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to examine. I'm not saying it's not good for you to have a theology. Keep it, argue for it, don't let it distract you from the mission. If we get so concerned about what's going to happen that we forget we're on a mission in the present moment, it is going to lead you astray and we're going to get so fixated on a thought that we're going to miss the people God has put right around us. Again, not against it. But if the apostles weren't going to know and the son said, I don't know the day, only the father does, I think we need to be careful how fixated we can get. And we need to stay on mission. Isn't that clear? You're like, no, I hate this place. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to smash your, your friend. I, I'm not trying to crush any other churches around here. I just really believe if you're going to get into it, get into it, but be careful. Let it fuel your mission, not take away. Let it fuel you to reaching for people because you know the end is coming, not to keep you from reaching people because you've got to answer a question. If you're putting down your phone when your friend asks you to go to lunch for the sake of answering a question in the theology book, go take your friend out for lunch first. Then get back to your theology book. I'm just trying to clarify order here. Okay. I feel like you're all quiet. I feel like I just like took your little favorite stuffed animal and it's like. Next one is just as tough for, some, for somebody like me. You got to get out of your bubble. Notice the apostles were stuck in a bubble. They said, Lord, with this time, will you restore the kingdom to what? Israel? Israel was their bubble. It would take, it's going to take chapters later for Peter to be smacked around by God with a big sheet and animals on it going, whack, 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 get out of here and go to a Gentile's house. I can't. I've never done that before. Go. We can get so caught in our bubble. They were caught in their Israel bubble. We get caught in our church bubbles. 
Especially me, man. I'm a pastor. I've been evangelizing my staff every day for years, and none of them have given their life to Jesus yet. Because well, Actually, because they already did. But, you know, I have to work at building non-Christian friendships. I have to work at getting out of the bubble because I come here and I listen to my Christian, you know, I listen to my Christian news station on my way home and my Christian leadership stuff on the way to work. And I get home and we pray as a family and we focus in on Jesus together and we talk about Jesus. And my wife and I are constantly talking about Jesus and trying to read the Bible. And then I go to the field and it's hanging out and I meet all the other people who know Jesus at the field. And then I go back from the field and I get back, you know, I'm not on the, I'm not on the screens all the time. But when I am, it's usually about Jesus. So I'm in a bubble you're in a bubble. I mean, some of you guys carpool and you put in your podcast and you're listening to Jesus while you've got guys around you that need to hear about Jesus. We get in our bubbles to some of us have had these conversations where literally we're like, maybe we should have our neighbor over. And we go, but you know what? What if they say that thing around our kids? I don't want them to influence our kids. Guys, which is a bigger influence that you're on mission and your children are watching you be on mission? You can explain, hey, we're Christians. We don't talk that way, but we love people who are like that. We don't believe the same thing, but we love people who are like that. We don't do those things, but we love people who do. Isn't that more powerful to our children than fear? We need to get out of our bubbles. We need to get out of our church bubbles. We need to get out of our work bubbles. There's plenty of bubbles. And the danger of a bubble is when it gets popped. And I've seen this in colleges and in lives. When you pop the bubble, there's always some people that get ejected. And they fall far away from the faith never to return. And that may be some of your story. You lived in a Christian bubble and now you're trying to come back and you're not so sure because you're so nervous because you were taught in that bubble a specific way. And it hurt when that popped and you got ejected and you didn't want, and I get it. But we need to be the kind of people who love people beyond our bubbles. Get out of our bubbles and go connect indiscriminately with them all. And finally, we need to go because it's going to end. You're like, you mean the sermon's going to end? Yes, right now. Um, no, because the mission is going to end. The mission is going to end. One day, you will no longer have the opportunity to reach to your uncle, to connect with the coworker, to be able to talk to your children. One day, there will be a final ending to this mission. Because yes, Jesus will come back. Notice what happens here at the end in Acts verses, one, or verses 9 through 11. When they had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up. Or sorry, yeah, and as a cloud took him out of their sight. I love this. I've always been curious. Was this like SpaceX Jesus? Like when he just took off straight up real fast? Was it like elevator Jesus? Like he just slowly went up? stop, next level, or is it like escalator Jesus, like he went up and out in a distance, and like, he's like balloon Jesus, he just kind of floated up in different directions, like Mary Poppins, you're like, oh look, there you go, what was this, I just, I'm so curious, because I have no idea, right, but it's fascinating to think about, they're standing there, they're watching, you ever seen kids watch a balloon disappear, they're all like, I still see it, because that's what these guys are doing. I still see him. No, that cloud's in the way, man. No, I, I swear, I still, you don't, you can't even see across the street, Peter. No, I swear. And as they're fixated there, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went to, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why are you staring into the sky? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And when he comes back, my friends, when there is a return, the mission's over. The worship begins, the exploration 
of the beauty and the eternal things of the new earth and the wonder of who God is will continue and the, the praise and the celebration and the invention and the wonder of all of what and who God is will continue, but evangelism will be done. It'll be closed. There'll be no need to share the message anymore because everyone will know it and everyone will be celebrating it because everybody in heaven knows they didn't deserve it. And everybody there will understand they never should have been in that location. It's not something that was earned or deserved. It was something they simply received. And I don't know about you, but this prompts me to the one simple question I have up on my wall. What does it take to bring this message to a million people? What does it take to bring this message to a million people? That's not even 1% of the population on earth. Now that sounds like a giant, crazy goal. These 12 men and the family of Jesus and those surrounding them with 100 and plus more that are surrounding them will reach well over a million people in their lifetime before they're dead. They will have reached tens of millions of people. Within 300 years, the entire Roman Empire will have flipped to proclaim Christianity as the sole and central faith of the people of Rome. You know what it takes to do that? It takes two things. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit, which you already have, and the witness, which is already given to you. Oh, wait, and one more thing. We got to go. We just got to go. Let's go. Let's take it serious. The mission of the early church is the mission today still, regardless of what it looks like around here. Just bow our heads. Father, we pray you'd lead us to go. Challenge us to live for your name. We pray that you would enable us to be a people who are taking that witness and that power to live for you, to share this indiscriminately, to be challenged with the objections that we might see some know you and walk with you in eternity. Help us, we pray, that that number, that sum, may be greater than we could have ever imagined. We ask for your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen.